If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 37. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 36 this morning. <clears throat> been titled it Going Once, Going Twice Sold. We'll see that and how that all plays out in just a minute. But um, Harriet Tubman was born into slavery on a Maryland plantation in 1822. As she grew up, she was made to work driving oxen, trapping muskrats in the woods, and as a nursemaid. Harriet's owners frequently whipped her, and she endured the pain of seeing three of her sisters sold, never to be seen again. But when her owner tried to sell one of her brothers, Harriet's mother openly rebelled. The would-be buyer gave up after Harriet's mother told him, the first man that comes into my house, I'll split his head open. Wow. Her mother's actions likely implanted in Harriet the idea that resistance to evil was right and could sometimes be successful. As a child, Harriet herself would run away for days at a time, but there were rays of hope in her life as well. Harriet's mother told her stories from the Bible, which developed in her a deep and abiding faith in God. When Harriet was about 26 years old, she learned that she might be sold away from her family. The time had come to try to escape. She made her way some 90 miles along the Underground Railroad. She traveled at night to avoid slave catchers, following the North Star until she reached Pennsylvania and freedom. Once there, she dared to make a dangerous decision. She risked her own freedom in order to give others theirs. For eight years, she led scores of slaves north to freedom. During these trips, she relied upon God to guide and protect her. She never once lost a runaway slave. As Harriet herself later put it, I never ran my train off the track, and I never lost a passenger. She gave all the credit to God, explaining, Taunt me... "'Twas the Lord. I always told him, I trust to you. I don't know where to go or what to do, but I expect you to lead me. And he always did. Her faith deeply impressed others. As abolitionist Thomas Garrett put it, I never met with any person of any color who had more confidence in the voice of God as spoken direct to her soul. And she trusted in the providence and protection and sovereignty of God in her life, it's just incredible, and, and most of us have never experienced anything like that. We've never experienced the slave trade. We have experienced some auctions, though, haven't we? Judy and I used to go to auctions when we lived in Ohio because we didn't have a lot of furniture, and, and uh, we were able to get some pretty nice uh, furniture pieces, at least I thought they were nice, uh, for a little bit of nothing. And uh, we kept those pieces for many, many years before we got rid of them, but I always hoped that the bid would not go too high since we didn't have a lot of money at that point. Some of us have experienced um, the Winter's Fellowship auctions here at IWUB Church. When we used to have that, those auctions, there were a few items that I would always bid on. I'd always bid on uh, the large jars of pickled eggs and beets. Those are one of my favorites. I would also bid on artwork like photographs and paintings. I don't think I ever bid, uh, won the bid for one of the large jars of pickled eggs and beets. They always went higher than I could go. But I did win a bid uh, or so of a couple of artwork pieces. How many of us have experienced the excitement of the Winner's Fellowship auctions? And what, were, uh, what, what items were bid on the most? I may not have all of them correct, but I remember that Hog Mall went for quite a price. Do you remember that? 
Woo! How many of you spend a lot of money on that? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. How about some raspberry ice cream, homemade raspberry ice cream? Do you remember that? Oh, the pickled eggs and beets, again, my favorite. And then these paper-thin cookies. Do you remember those? And how much they would go for as Winter's Fellowship would raise money for missions. My guess is that none of us have ever been a part of slave trading. Slavery is still prevalent today. Are you aware of that? Even though it's no longer legal. At the website someall.org, they compared slavery from the 1860s to 2012. There were 25 million slaves worldwide in 1860, and there were 27 million slaves worldwide in 2012. More slaves. The median price for a slave in 1860 was $134, and the median price for a slave in 2012 was 140 $78% of slaves were legal in 1860. 0% of slaves were legal in 2012. But it's still happening, right? It's still going on. Last week we talked about the hatred that Joseph's brothers had toward him. Their hatred grew and eventually turned into jealousy and envy when Joseph shared his dreams with them. We still see today, uh, we will see today, the result of having their hatred unchecked It went beyond more hatred and envy to something much more serious. We'll see again today the same big idea that we saw last week, that unchecked hatred leads to greater sin. And so as we allow that uh, to kind of just resonate in our hearts and minds this morning, would you just bow your heads with me as we commit it to the Lord in prayer? Lord, we, we come before you as your sheep, We need you as our shepherd today to guide and direct us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we we need to hear your voice today. I pray that you would speak through your servant. Lord, we just come in humility and we kneel at your cross today asking that you would just work powerfully through this message in the hearts and minds of your people. So, Lord, we submit ourselves to you now, and we ask all this in your precious Son's name. Amen. So let's look at verses 12 to 17 as we learn about pursue. This is what God's Word says. Now his brothers, excuse me. <coughs> now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said uh, to him, go, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. Uh, When Joseph arrived in Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Uh, Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to to Dothan. So Joseph... Yeah. 
So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. So he's pursuing them, right? Last week, Joseph's brothers uh, hated him. We saw this from last week. Joseph's brothers hated him because he was the favored son of Jacob, and, and he had been given a special robe. They hated him even more when uh, he told them his first dream about their sheaths bowing down to his. They were envious and jealous after he shared a second dream about the sun, moon, and, and 11 stars bowing down to him. So this hatred is growing and it's unchecked. Jacob rebuked Joseph, but also kept a dream in his mind because he knew that God speaks through dreams and that God accomplishes and fulfills dreams as well um, that he gives to his people. And so after all that happened, Joseph's brothers went 50 to 60 miles, a little over 50 miles north of Hebron to graze their, flo- their father's flocks near Shechem. And so we see Israel's request here of his young, or one, next to the youngest son, I should say. Uh, so Israel reminds Joseph that his brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Now, Warren Wearsby asks a couple of good questions in his commentary that I think we should consider this morning. The first one is this. Why were Jacob's sons pasturing their flocks 50 miles from home when there was surely good grassland available closer to Hebron? Here's the possible answer. They didn't want anybody from the family spying on them. Remember what, remember what Joseph did last week? We, he gives a bad report to Jacob about all of these sons that are taking care of the sheep or the flocks. So like maybe they're like, well, we just need to get further away so like Joseph can't just walk out during the day and see what's going on with us. So they're out that direction. So why did they return to the dangerous, this is the second question I should say, why did they return to the dangerous area near Shechem when Jacob's family had such a bad reputation among the citizens there? Remember that Simeon and Levi murdered the Hivites after Shechem raped their sister Dina. That was in um, Genesis 34, verse 30. Here's the suggested answer. The brothers were involved with the people of the land in ways that they didn't want Jacob to know about. Right? Perhaps. <clears throat> we don't know. We're not told. But perhaps that's the issue. They don't want to be spied on, uh, number one, and they want to be able to do what they're doing uh, with the people of the land. So they weren't following God at that point. So Israel tells Joseph that he's going to send him to his brothers near Shechem. <clears throat> Warren Wearsby shares one more thing. He says, knowing that his sons hated Joseph, why did Jacob send him out to visit them alone and wearing the special garment that had aggravated them so much? The answer is that the provident, providential hand of God was working to accomplish his divine purposes for Jacob and his family and ultimately for the whole world. God had ordained that Joseph would go to Egypt, and this was the way he accomplished it. So we're going to see this all throughout this particular passage. Time and time again, I'm going to be referring back to you the fact that God, is, in his providence and in his sovereignty, is guiding and directing all of these things that are going to take place. It's just phenomenal the number of things that happen so that Joseph gets to, to Egypt. So just be, be aware, that's the overarching theme of what's going on in this passage. It's God's providence and sovereignty at work. He's in control. So, Uh, We see Joseph's response then. He is compliant, right? Joseph's response can be translated several ways in different translations. Uh, Joseph says to his father, very well. He says to his father, here am I, or here I am. Another one is, I'm ready, or I will go. 
So he's compliant. Joseph's obedience to his father's request is amazing to me, especially in light of the fact that he knows his brothers hate him. They won't even talk to him. We talked about that last week. They won't even say to him, Shalom, peace be with you, hello or goodbye. They're not doing that. They're, they're like, we're not even going to talk to you. And so Joseph has to play a little bit of hide and seek. He leaves the valley of Hebron and heads to Shechem. So you're going to see that on the map. Um, it's about 50, 52, 53 miles north of where he's been with his father. And when he arrives in Shechem, he can't uh, find his brothers, so he's wandering around the fields on the outskirts of Shechem looking for them. Walton says this, the Hebrew word uh, that the NIV translates wandering is generally used when someone is lost or, or straying from the right path. This same verb described Hagar's wandering in Genesis chapter 21, verse 14. So it's the same thing. They're kind of like just aimlessly walking around. Perhaps roaming is a better word for what he's doing um, uh, at this point. And then we see that um, he runs into this anonymous, anonymous man. We're not given the name of the man that finds Joseph roaming around the fields outside of Shechem. Matthew says this, whether the quote-unquote man is an angel or a human, the unseen hand of God is apparent here. He's directing Joseph to discover his brothers so that the divine plan for the salvation of Jacob and many peoples might be realized, although it meant a troubling time for the house of Jacob. We see the sovereignty of God again here. Why is Joseph sent there by his father? Sovereignty of God, providence of God. Why does this anonymous man show up? Um, it's the providence and sovereignty of God. Joseph needed to waste a little bit of time in Shechem because you're going to find out why in just a moment. And again, that's the sovereignty of God. So he's wandering around. That's all a part of God's plan. This, um, he's using all these circumstances to accomplish his plan and purpose. And so uh, this is what's going on. He meets this anonymous man. It's also uh, not by chance, but by God's providence and sovereignty that this anonymous man overhears the brother's plan to go to Dothan. He just kind of overhears that conversation. And so he's helping Joseph. He's saying to him, I know where your brothers are at. Let me help you. Let me uh, keep you from continuing to wander around here in these fields outside of Shechem. And so the first principle I want us to think about this morning is that helping others is pleasing to God. That's what this guy was doing. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 tells us this, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul, writing to the Philippian believers, says in chapter 2, verse 4, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. We're to help one another out. And then the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 16 says this, And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. And so just a simple question for you to think about today. Is there someone I can help today or this week? So just be thinking about that. Let, let the Lord kind of lead and guide you today and through the rest of this week. So Joseph follows the man's advice, and he travels another 13 miles northwest of Shechem to Dothan. Joseph doesn't see his brothers yet, but they recognize him as he approaches. And so they... Um, they start working on a plot. That's our second point today. Look at verses 18 to 24. <clears throat> we read these words. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. 
Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from their hand, or to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. So the plot that they initially do is murder and deception. We're going to kill him, throw him in a cistern, and then say that he was killed by a ferocious animal. He's dead. So this initial plot was to physically kill Joseph. And so uh, they were still very angry about his two dreams, and they figured that if they killed him, his dreams could never come true. That's the whole point. They're like, well, they're just going to kill him, and then these dreams that he has aren't going to come true. We're, we're golden. We're not going to be bowing down to him anytime soon. And so our second principle today is this, that sin in the heart can lead to sin outside the heart. So if we just allow that sin to continue to fester and grow in our hearts, eventually it's going to uh, produce itself outside of our heart. So unchecked hatred leads to more sin or to greater sin. Joseph's brothers had taken the hatred and envy they had been harboring in their hearts and were now openly talking uh, about or taking, his, taking it to the next level, which was murder. Had they dealt with the hatred in their hearts, it's most likely that they would have not gone to the next level. They probably would have started talking to Joseph again, greeting him as he would come. Most of us have probably never been so angry with someone that we openly talked with someone else about killing them. But listen to Jesus' words when he's teaching about anger in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 22. This is what he says. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to punishment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So Jesus teaches us that if we are angry with our brother and we don't forgive, we deserve the same judgment as someone who's committed murder. We need to confess the sin in our hearts so that it doesn't cause us to sin outside of our heart. Anger is not the only sin in our hearts that can leak. There's so many more. And so our first next step today on the back of your communication card is to do this, and that's to confess the sin I have been harboring in my heart so that it doesn't leak outside my heart. Maybe you're ready to take that step today. So we see this second principle that sin in the heart can lead to sin outside the heart. But our third principle is this, that murder is wrong. I hope you all know that today. It's kind of obvious, right? God says that one of his Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, is you shall not murder. But murder comes in a lot of forms today, doesn't it? It first comes in actually taking another person's life. But it also can come in the form of abortion, which is murder. That's the taking of a life of an unborn baby. Euthanasia is taking the life of an elderly person or a terminally ill individual instead of allowing God to do that. 
So God's word tells us that murder in any form is wrong. Now, at least one of the brothers was not blinded by hatred and envy. Thank goodness, because it's the sovereignty of God again. Reuben makes a suggestion. This is what he says. When, when Reuben heard that the other brothers were plotting, what they were plotting, he made a suggestion. He encouraged them to not take Joseph's life or to shed any of his blood. Now, whether or not Reuben was thinking this, this is what was taking place, and it's our fourth principle today. He was confronting sin, and confronting sin is always right. But it, we have to be careful on how we do it. He was confronting his brothers about taking Joseph's life and shedding his blood. Like I said, confronting sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ is always right, but it must be done in love after we have first examined ourselves. There's a lot of things we have to do before we start pointing the finger to someone else, right? Jesus teaches this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, uh, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So we have to do some examination of ourselves first, right? Paul writes to the Galatian believers then in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, that means we've taken care of the plank in our own eye, should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. So it's a continual process for us. Carry each other's burdens, and in, that, and in this way you will fo- fulfill the law of Christ. Paul continues to write to the Ephesian believers in chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, and he says, Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. There's confronting sin. For it is shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. In writing to his son in the Lord, he says to Timothy, Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that others may take warning. And then James writes this in his epistle, My brothers, if any of you should wander from the truth and somehow, and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So confronting sin is always right, and so maybe you're ready to take this second step today, and that's in love confront a fellow believer about their sin after I have examined myself first. So we have to do some work on our own before we can do that. And that's basically what Reuben was doing by making the suggestion that he did. He recommended throwing Joseph into one of the cisterns. And perhaps what Reuben was suggesting to his brothers was that without food and water, Joseph would die from natural causes. So we don't have to touch him. We don't have to hurt him. We don't have to shed his blood. He'll just die here in the cistern out in the desert. It's dry. There's no water in it. He doesn't have any food. It'll just take us several days, and he'll be gone. It would simply be from neglect. But Reuben's real plan, we find out, was to rescue Joseph and take him back to his father. Now, we're not told why Reuben was hesitant to kill Joseph. He was probably just as angry as all the other brothers. We know that Reuben had fallen out of Jacob's good graces because he had slept with Bilhah, Jacob's one wife. Perhaps Reuben is trying to gain his father's blessing and good graces again. And so this is God's providence. Do you see it? His his sovereignty here again? 
at work. I believe that God was using Reuben and his suggestion to protect Joseph from death because he had a plan for Joseph. God is orchestrating everything that's happening to accomplish his plan and purpose for Joseph and ultimately Jacob and his family and even other nations and peoples. So Reuben steps in and goes, hey, let's not, let's not do this, you know, and, and we're going to save his life. And the brothers, the brothers obviously agree with Reuben's suggestion because when Joseph meets up with his brothers, they strip off his special robe and they threw him into the empty cistern. That was probably the, event, the extent of what they were going to do to him. They didn't have any other plans at that point. We're just going to let him there. And uh, they said, wow, he kind of just wastes away. And perhaps as he's crying out, saying, let me out, let me out, um, they just decide to sit down and eat their meal. But God had another plan in mind. And as the brothers sit down to eat this meal, God initiates the next step in his plan. And that's our third point this morning, his plan. Let's look at verses 25 to 30. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After, after all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Because he's beside himself. The Ishmaelites are also called the Midianite merchants in verse 28. And then down in verse 36, some uh, translations call them Medianites. It's probably all the same group of people. Matthews makes a little bit of a distinction when he says, when first sighted, the quote-unquote Ishmaelites were seen, verse 25, and then as they come nearby, they are identified as Midianites. So as they get closer, he's like, oh, okay, well, they're Midianites, but they all are from the same region. Um, in the Arabian Desert region, which is what Walton points out to us. That's where they kind of uh, were all living. He said the Midianites are descendants of Abraham through Keturah, his one wife, while the Ishmaelites descended from Abraham through Hagar. So these are kinfolk. These traders are second and third cousins to Joseph and his brothers. And so and it wasn't unusual to find these two clans together since they both occupy the Arabian Desert region. What was their route? They're coming up from Gilead. They're coming up towards Dothan. Um, they're following the east-west uh, trade route, uh, but they were going to pick up the north-south trade route that went right there through Dothan and headed on their way down to Egypt. So Dothan was right on that trade route. So was it a coincidence? No. Was it Providence? Yeah. It's God at work again. Like, Joseph needed to waste a little bit of time at Shechem so that these traders, these merchants, could, could come so that at just the right time they would be there when the brothers sit down for this meal and they just happen to be going to Egypt, which is where God needs Joseph to be, right? just happens. No, it's all God's providence. It's his hand of sovereignty working. And so he they, uh, they do all of this and, uh, and prepare for what they're going to do. So we see the trade contents as well. It's spices, 
Balm would have been from uh, native to Gilead. The myrrh would have come up from southern Arabia, so someone had brought it up to them in Gilead, and then they were taking it on their way down to Egypt. And these merchants didn't trade exclusively in spices and balm. Otherwise, they wouldn't have agreed to this deal that the brothers bring. They're also willing to trade human beings, as we'll see in just a moment. So before the merchants arrive, Judah has a suggestion. And probably the reason that Judah speaks up at this point is because Reuben's not there. He's not with them at this point. Judah also recognizes that murder is wrong and perhaps uses his suggestion as an opportunity to confront his brothers about their sinful desire to kill Joseph. So again, he's confronting sin, which is right. He knows that murder is wrong. And so he makes this suggestion. And the Lord is using Judah's conscience to accomplish his plan and purpose for Joseph. Judah is looking at what they can gain by not killing Joseph, but instead selling him to the Midianite merchants. One other interesting note about what Judah says is this. If they don't kill Joseph, they will not have to cover up his blood. That's important. Think back to Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, uh, and Hamilton kind of brings it out. Judah is primarily concerned that he and his brothers not shed innocent blood. His apprehension is that spilled blood cries out from the ground for vengeance when one attempts to cover it. Remember Cain and Abel? Listen to this, Genesis chapter 4, verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Job understood this too. He said, O earth, do not cover my blood. May my cry uh, never uh, be laid to rest. Isaiah understood it too. He says, See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed upon her. She will not conceal her slain. Uh, she, will, she will conceal her slain no longer. I think Judah understood that. He's like, we can't hide this from God. If we take his life and shed his blood, his blood's going to cry out from the ground for vengeance. And so the brothers agree to Judah's suggestion of selling Joseph to the Midianite merchants. And when the merchants get close, they pull Joseph out of the cistern and sell him for 20 shekels of silver. And this was close to the going rate for slaves and probably left some room for the Ishmaelites to make a profit. So the deal is done, and the merchants have left with Joseph. And we see God's providence again here. I mean, he's moving. He's like, Judah, I'm going to use your, what, what you've just done to preserve Joseph's life, but also to get him down to Egypt. Now, we're not told where Reuben was during the meal and the deal with the merchants, but we know that he's not there. Once, uh, once again, we see the providence and sovereignty of God. Had Reuben been there during the mealtime, and the arrival of the merchants, he would have protested and refused Judah's suggestion because he wanted to take him back to his father. In God's providence, he was not there, and the deal with the merchants was completed. So Reuben's beside himself. He tore his clothes as a sign of grief and despair. He returned to where his brothers were, probably finishing up their meal. He, he tells them that Joseph is gone, which wasn't news to them. They knew that. And he doesn't know where to turn because he feels personally responsible for Joseph's safety. How will he be able to gain his father's approval since Joseph is gone? The brothers simply follow through then with the deception they had already thought about when they first plotted to kill Joseph. We see that in verses 31 to 36. Then they got Joseph's robe, 
slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son, son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning I will go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So we final point is this, is prevaricate. It had to be a P word, I'm sorry. So, and you're going, what in the world is prevaricate? It means to deceive, lie, or stretch the truth. That's exactly what they were doing. They were prevaricating. <laughs> Took me a while to find that one this week, by the way. <laughs> Jacob is deceived by a goat, or at least the blood of a goat. The brothers slaughtered a goat and dipped Joseph's robe in it and made it look like Joseph had been attacked by a ferocious animal. They took the blood-stained robe to Jacob and told him they had found this robe in this condition. Then they asked him to identify the robe. Was it his son's robe? They didn't say their brother. Uh, Jacob positively identified it as Joseph's robe. The brothers didn't have to share their quote-unquote story about Joseph's demise, that he was you know, killed by a ferocious animal, because Jacob immediately draws his own conclusion. He says, some ferocious animal has devoured him and it's torn him to pieces. So they didn't even have to say anything because, well, Jacob already made his own conclusions. They were probably feeling good at that point. Whew. Now here's a note. Jacob had deceived his father, Isaac, by preparing a goat just the way he liked it and by wearing goat hair skin on his arms and neck to make his father believe he was Esau. Now he's being deceived by goat's blood. Interesting, isn't it? It's like it's coming full circle. Jacob's mourning for his son. He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. Now we're not told how long many days is, but Jacob says that he will mourn for Joseph until he dies. Until I die and meet my son, I'm going to just mourn his death. Matthew says, but God had a better outcome for Jacob because many days proved to have an end, 22 years, until they were reunited. Jacob refused to be comforted by his sons and daughters. He cannot forget that Joseph, or we cannot forget that Joseph was his favorite son, born to him by his favorite wife. <clears throat> Matthew says that Jacob refused his children's consolation was uncommon, revealing the intensity of his grief, for his rejection of comforters meant the most aggravated anguish. And this is another result of unchecked hatred leading to greater sin. Jacob's sons were going to have to continue the deception for the rest of their lives, or at least until Jacob died, right? And so that's our fifth principle today, is that deception causes heartache. Jacob's sons probably knew how devastated he would be when he learned of Joseph's death, perhaps they did not realize to what extent it would affect him. He would not be comforted and would never stop mourning until his own death. So honesty is always the best policy. There's going to be hurt, anger, and distrust for a little while, but eventually healing and restoration will come. Being honest also means we do not have to keep up the ruse, the lie, the deception. Perhaps there are 
has been some deception in your family or at school, at work, or in your neighborhood, healing can begin when we come clean. And so maybe you're ready to take that third step today, and that's to begin the healing process by coming clean with the individual or individuals I have been deceiving. That's important. Yeah, is it going to be a hard road? You better believe it. But it's worth it. We see Joseph's faith then. While Jacob is mourning, Joseph is traveling. The Midianites sold Joseph to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials. He was the captain of the guard, which meant that, which meant that he and his soldiers were in charge of executions. And so as we come to the end of this message today, just some review questions for you. Is there some sin you need to confess today? Is there a fellow believer that you need to confront and love? Is there some deception you need to reveal? <clears throat> Warren Wearsby says this, Years later, Jacob would lament, All these things are against me, when actually all these things were working for him. This doesn't mean that God approved of or engineered the brothers' hatred and deception or that they weren't responsible for what they did. It does mean that our God is so great that he can work out his purposes even when people are doing their worst. That's the sovereignty and providence of God. He's taking the worst that these guys can throw out there and he's saying, you're not going to stop my plan. Joseph's not going to die. He's going to go to Egypt because that's where I need him to be and I'm going to work all of this out even with the things that plans and that you have. <clears throat> a young man from an impoverished background dreamed of a better life for himself and his family than the hard scrabble existence he had known growing up. He saved all he could and went deeply into debt to launch a grocery startup in a town called New Salem. His partner had an alcohol problem and he ended up so far in the hole that he referred to his financial obligations as the national debt. He gave up on ever <clears throat> being a successful businessman, and it took him more than a decade to pay off his failed dream. He went into law and then politics, and in 1860, Abraham Lincoln was elected president. He was an avid Shakespeare fan, and his favorite quote came from Hamlet, There is a divinity that shapes our ends. Rough you them as we may. He came to believe this deeply about his own life, but, he also, uh, but also about the nation he led. His entire second inaugural address is an amazingly profound reflection on how God was at work in the Civil War in ways more mysterious and profound than any human being could fathom. What a loss it would have been, not just to him, but to a whole nation if the doors of that little grocery he started in New Salem hadn't closed. Abraham Lincoln believed in the providence and sovereignty of God. He said, I saw it all throughout. It was mysterious to me. I don't know why I was doing and how these things were working out, but it's amazing that God was in control, even in the Civil War. Most of you know my story. You know, I've worked in children's ministry for so many years, and, and then God uh, took us out to Southern California to uh, work with another children's ministry there, and it was there that I got introduced to Calvary Chapel that I got introduced to Chuck Smith's writings. And it was through his writings that I knew that I could step into pastoral ministry. It's the providence and sovereignty of God. It was a process that I had to go through. And I kept telling God no for those 13 years. And he was like, I'm still going to use your no to accomplish my plan and purpose. I'm going to get you where I need you to be. And so I see, I see it all through my life. I see it all through the life of Joseph.
And so, um, anyhow, I hope you're encouraged today. As we just let that uh, sink in, as the ushers prepare to take up the tithes and offerings and the communication cards, as the worship team comes, would you just bow your head with me as we commit it to the Lord in prayer? Lord, we are so grateful for your word. We are so grateful for what we can learn through it. And Lord, to, we just stand in awe today of your sovereignty and your providence that was so evident throughout Joseph's narrative here, his life, Lord God, how you just worked in incredible ways from having his father send him to, to the brothers, to him being agreeable to go to his brothers, to this anonymous person, this man that they directed him to where his brothers were, to Reuben uh, making the suggestion not to have him killed, to Judah recommending selling him into slavery. Lord, it was all part of your plan and purpose to get Joseph right where you want him to be. And Lord, we thank you for how you work in our lives in the same way. When there's times where we have gone opposite of where you want us to go, and yet you use that, and you prepare us for where you want us to be. And so, Lord, we are grateful for that today. Would you just move by your Holy Spirit that we would take the steps that you're calling us to take today? And we just ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.